Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. We're gonna, I'm going to preach today on Psalm 31. If you would turn there with me or follow along on the screen behind me. I'm going to read our passage for today, and I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. So please follow along. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul, and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body has wasted away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man. Out of mind, I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Now, there are 24 verses in this psalm, so we're not going to be able to touch on every single one of them. Uh, We're not going to unpack the whole psalm in detail, and instead I'm going to hop around a little bit and touch on a few verses to bring out out a uh, a few main points. So my first point today is one I want to reiterate from the last time I preached on the psalms, and, and that is this. 
the Psalms are for you. They are the Christian's prayer book, so own them, claim them as yours. Don't be ashamed to say that this God, the God of David who was writing these thousands of years ago, don't be ashamed to say that this God is your God also. America is a melting pot, and so we live with people from many different backgrounds and many different beliefs and religions. And so it's common in our pluralistic culture to believe that all roads lead to God, all roads lead to heaven, and it's common to shame Christians who think that their God is the only God or that, they're, they, or that they are somehow on God's side. David didn't have any trouble believing that, and neither should you. That is the point, after all, of being a Christian, to know God and to walk with him. That's why we're here. So there's no reason it'd be silly to be ashamed of that fact. Now, there's a world of difference between those who just talk like Christians and someone who, ta- who talks like a Christian and actually means it, right? People aren't dumb. They'll, they'll be able to tell the difference uh, between someone who is sincere in their confession and someone who's not. And this is, becomes ev- evidently clear whenever there's any kind of pressure put on the person to, 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 to fake it. Everyone around you will be able to tell if you're faking it, and everyone around David could tell also. That's why he had so many enemies, in fact. It's not until you say it like you mean it that anyone will actually stand up and notice your faith. But if you do, if you do start to say it like you mean it, then the reaction will be swift and strong. And this is exactly why David desperately needed a refuge, right? This is why he's crying out to God. He says, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your, uh, for your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. These are not the words of a man whose highest aspiration is to simply have a nice house or a nice car, a well-paying job, 2.1 children. These are the words of a man who is flat out depending on God, right? He's not just hoping for the American dream. He's hoping for God's salvation. If God doesn't rescue him, he's done for. He's sunk. Now, You may not have King Saul chasing you, wanting to kill you, like David did, but the question is right here, right for you today, right? David wrote thousands of years ago, but this is for you today. How is it that you today are trusting God? Consider your own life. How is it today that you are saying, how are you living in such a way that If God doesn't rescue you, you're done for. Are you willing to trust God's word even when it's costly or makes you squirm? Notice, obviously, here that David has enemies. This is also something that's a little striking to us, and maybe we think, well, that doesn't actually translate to my life. But why not? As I said before, if you say it like you mean it, others will notice. 
And that means that you will have enemies. We like to think that we can skate through life without enemies, or in fact, we think that we've done something wrong if, for whatever reason, we start to have enemies. But again, think about your own life. If you're a disciple of Christ, has it cost you something to follow Jesus? Was it painful for you to confess sin? to give up drinking or lying or stealing or looking at pornography? Were these things painful to bring out into the light and confess and, to, and to, to bring under the lordship of Jesus Christ and to, Lord willing, to see change? If so, then you can assume that the call to repentance and faith will be painful for others also, and people don't like pain, right? Their first reaction to pain is generally not a positive one. I don't know if this, is, this was your reaction, but for many of us, th- this is the reaction. When someone calls us to repentance and faith, we generally want to punch the person in the face, right? And so uh, if, if, to do that, to call people to repentance and faith, they may not be happy with you the first time you do it, and they may actually act as your enemy. Now, it's certainly possible to have enemies because you're a nasty, quarrelsome person, right? Uh, that's certainly possible, and that's not what I'm talking about here. Why did David have enemies? Why was Saul his enemy? Was David a quarrelsome person with Saul? No. Saul was David's enemy because Saul had a bad conscience and David was a righteous man. If you love God, if you walk with God, you're going to be weird in this day. You're going to stick out. You're going to have enemies. And so um, are you willing to stick out? Right? This is a question that we have to ask ourselves. Now, the Psalms also exist to train. The, the, the Psalms are our prayer book. They're, they are for us, and so we have to claim them. We have to own them as Christians. But they are also there to train our emotions. All right? some, of this is easy, some of that is easy for us to swallow. Uh, so, for instance, in, in verse 19 of Psalm 31, it says, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. So the psalmist in verse 19 is, is praising the goodness of God and he's declaring that God's goodness is stored up for his people. Now, of course, sometimes it's difficult for us to praise God or we don't feel like it or whatever, but that kind of emotion is what we would expect in the Psalms, right? We expect to see uh, God being praised in the Psalms. But because of the constant uh, culture we live in, the sort of stew we're brought up in, we tend to be very uncomfortable when when we see in the Psalms other kinds of emotions like anger or hatred or disgust, right? Those make us feel uncomfortable. So verse 6, for instance, says this, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. And so hate is like a lightning rod word, right? It sticks out like a neon sign flashing at you. Uh, Because you see the word hate on signs, right? Or even around Bloomington, no hate here, right? And um, and, and you you know the term hate? hate crime, you know, this, this word hate is, uh, is in our culture and it's something that we've distanced ourselves from. And so, especially as Christians, we're commanded to love one another. This is, uh, this is what Jesus said, the highest commandment is to love God and love one another. 
And so what does that have to do with hate? Doesn't hate mean anger? And doesn't the Bible say we should put away all anger and hatred and malice? It does say that, in fact. Um, and so our, our response to these negative emotions that we find in the Psalms are, are generally, is generally to be suspicious of them. But this is precisely why the Psalms are so helpful to us, right? They open up to us the whole emotional life of a Christian. They help teach us what our emotions are supposed to be. And so if you stop and think about it, you'll realize that strong emotion in one direction is actually requires strong emotion in the other. Well, what do I mean? Well, to love God is to hate evil, right? To love the good is to hate evil. To love God is to hate idols. To love your wife is to hate even the thought of adultery, right? In another example, uh, you know, famous athletes devote themselves to one thing, one small, very small set of skills, actually, and, and they do it. It's almost like they hate all other sports, right? So, but often, you know, we, we put up with that kind of thing with athletes, maybe, or, um, uh, but often when it comes to religion, we're told to tamp down our emotions, to not get carried away, to not lose our dignity. Um, and yet, with other things, we're welcome to let our emotions just kind of run wild. So whether you're talking about sports, you know, we can get real exercised about a sports team or movies, what the, the best movie is or, you know, whatever it is, uh, best book, best car. Um, you know, we can get carried away with a lot of things, but we're not supposed to be carried away by religion. We're not supposed to have deep emotion about religion. But of course, that's hogwash, right? If you don't hate the things that God hates, you cannot love, you will not love the things that God loves. Those things go together. If you want to love the things that God loves, you have to hate what God hates. If you want to love justice, you have to hate injustice, right? If you love innocence, you've got to hate corruption. You have to do both. And so, the Psalms are there to teach us this very thing. Learn from the Psalms to love the things that God loves and to hate what God hates. And so David says here, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. So what is a vain idol anyway? Well, we're created to worship, and so we will always worship one God or another. Those who serve vain idols serve the gods of money or fame or power or sex, and that should be repulsive to us as Christians. We should want people to turn away from serving those gods to serving the living God. And what about gods of organized religions, right? Whether it's you're talking about Islam or Buddhism or Mormonism or any of the huge variety of religions out there. How are we supposed to feel? What are emotions supposed to be like about the countless millions of people who are led astray, led away from the one true God to serve vain idols? Are we supposed to feel nothing about that? I'm afraid that that's precisely what many of us do feel, right? We are lukewarm, we're cold, 
We feel nothing, which means we care nothing for those who are being led astray. And brothers and sisters, this is not how it's supposed to be. But it's still a little confusing, right? Because he says, I hate those who uh, uh, give themselves to vain idols. And so we're still left with that uh, confusing word, hate, and hating, uh, hating a particular person. You know, what, how does that make sense? Well, I think the confusion can be cleared up by looking at the example of Jesus, right? Jesus had compassion on his people, and he wept over Jerusalem. Second Peter says that the Lord does not wish that any should perish. And yet Jesus is incredibly tough on the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. He gives them no quarter whatsoever. Mark chapter 3 records that the scribes and Pharisees were watching Jesus one Sabbath to see whether he would uh, break the Sabbath according to their rules and heal someone, right? Heal uh, the the arm, the, the hand of a man. It says that Jesus observed them watching him, wanting to catch him. He went ahead and healed the person. But it says that Jesus was angry at their hardness of heart. They were leading people away from God, and that made Jesus angry. You can feel Jesus' anger and hatred when he calls the scribes and the Pharisees vipers and whitewashed tombs. And these aren't people, these aren't anonymous people in the crowd that he's talking to. He probably knew these scribes and Pharisees by name and looked at them in the eye and said these things. This is very personal, right? We should have such emotion. We should, we should gnash our teeth at the thought of people being led away from serving and loving the one true God and, and led away to serving vain idols. May God help us in this. Now, just as the Psalms train our emotions, they also train our conscience. And how do we see this? Um, uh, our conscience is what tells us, right, the, the difference between good and evil, right? It's the little voice inside your head that, that makes you feel bad or makes you feel ashamed when you do something or witness something that is shameful or bad, right? Maybe wicked. And it makes you feel good when you witness something that is, is good or do something that is good. And as I said, the, the Psalms help train not just our emotions but our conscience, and, and so where do I see that? Well, shame appears in a number of verses in, in this psalm. For instance, in the verse 1, it says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. <clears throat> verse, seven, rather, verse 11 says, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. And again in verse 17, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol, in the grave. David calls upon God to protect him from being ashamed, and he asks God to put the wicked to shame. And so just as we're often muddled about our emotions, about the right thinking about emotions, we're also muddled about our right thinking about our conscience. And we've sucked up much of the assumptions of our conscience, 
just as we think that negative emotions, whether it's anger or sadness or, uh, or, or hatred, um, are always and every time bad, uh, we, we seem to think that shame and guilt are always every time bad also. And yet David here shows us that shame is inescapable. He says, let me not be not put to shame, but let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in the grave. It's either him or them who will be ashamed. There's no middle ground, right? There's no middle ground. And we see this actually played out in many ways throughout our country. Much of the culture wars, if you want to put it that way, are over th- this very issue, the question of pride and shame. Our nation has been gripped, for instance, about the question of homosexuality. So-called gay marriage was made legal by the Supreme Court just a few years ago. And more recently, we've seen the emergence uh, within even the most conservative churches um, of this gay Christian movement whereby men and women um, want to identify themselves as celibate gay homosexual Christians. Right? They want to have both the label homosexual and Christian. And so, is homosexuality something to be ashamed of, or is it something to be celebrated? You know, our culture at large, the secular culture, um, they have what are called gay pride parades. And of course, that's not accidental that they're called pride parades. The whole purpose is for something that has been considered shameful in the past to be considered something to be proud of now, right? That's the whole purpose. It's to remove, the goal is to remove the shame associated with sin with what God has has always, throughout his word, condemned as sin. Now, the Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve sinned, sin came into the world and corrupted everything. That means that everything about us, including our consciences and our emotions, must be reformed. And ultimately, we have to look to God and to his word to train our our conscience and our emotions. Now, there's another, uh, there's, you know, Secular psychologists and a fair number of evangelical preachers teach uh, that shame is always and everywhere a bad thing, but that's certainly not the teaching of Scripture. Uh, Shame acts like the nerve endings of our conscience, right? Just as, you know, if you stick your hand in the fire and you begin to feel pain, you know that you need to take your hand out of the fire, right? In the same way, when you feel shame, it's an indication that you've done something wrong, that you need to change something about what you do. But this is precisely why we need the Bible to teach us what to feel about shame and pride. How many of you, you know, anyone who's been through middle school knows that we need the Bible to show us that not everything that some people think we should be ashamed of, we really need to be ashamed of, right? Anyone who's been through middle school knows that, uh, you know, wearing you know, last year's sneakers or something uh, can bring shame in certain quarters. But that such, you know, there's no reason for a kid to feel ashamed by such a thing like that, right? It's, it's silly. And so we need the Bible to teach us what to be ashamed of for one thing, but also what not to be ashamed of. And so the truth is 
that as we grow in maturity, as you grow as a Christian, as God's uh, Holy Spirit works in your life, your conscience isn't, your conscience will do two things at the same time. On the one hand, it will grow more tender and soft toward God and his word, right? It'll grow more willing to confess sin and to bring it out into the light and to humble yourself. But on the other hand, your conscience will actually grow more hard at the same time. It'll be inured. It'll be, there'll be a barricade against what the world says is shameful. And so, for instance, right now, there's incredible pressure on Christians to be ashamed of believing that the Bible is true, that, that it is God's word. There's incredible pressure on Christians to, to, to trust what God says about manhood and womanhood and homosexuality and, and creation and any number of other issues. And so the question before you is, are you going to listen to what the world says about shame and pride, or are you going to take your cues from what Scripture says? <clears throat> the Pharisees accused Jesus of many things. They tried to shame him for hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes with sinners. Now, did Jesus take the bait? The answer is no. No, he didn't, right? He had a blockade against that false shame and was tender to his father instead. Today in this country, you will be shamed for believing what the Bible says about any host of things. And the question is, who, who will you take your cues from? From God's word or from, from the world? <clears throat> now, David was a fighting man and so his enemies were always after him. It's a recurring theme throughout many of the Psalms that uh, you know, David brings up his conflict with his enemies. And whether it was through bodily harm or through shaming him or both, they wanted David to suffer. And what was David's response to this constant danger, right? What was his response? We see his response in verse five here in Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. David is careful to commit his spirit to God. Now, as Christians, we know that each one of us is given an immortal soul that will never die. It's a soul that will continue after this physical life is over. And so we are very precious about our souls since we know that this life is passing away, but that the next life will last forever. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't care about what happens in this life, obviously. Anyone with eyes in their head knows that Christians throughout the world are committed to reducing pain and suffering wherever they see it, right? And so in Psalm 31, David shows us that it's acceptable for Christians to seek relief from God for our suffering now in this life and in various ways. And yet we still have a very different response to suffering than non-Christians do. And it's illustrated succinctly by this phrase of David's, into your hand I commit my spirit. Now Why? Why, what does this phrase have to do with suffering? Well, it teaches us, for one thing, that our mission in life isn't to eliminate suffering altogether, as if that were possible. Um, and in fact, suffering in this life is a tool that God uses to mold us and shape us for the next life. First Peter says a lot about suffering, and it says, for instance, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, blessed when you suffer, 
right? This, this is so contrary to the way that we naturally think that it kind of makes our, our hut explode. Um, and you can see the kind of godless, secular way of thinking about suffering and about shame, about uh, suffering the attack of, of people. Um, if you consider the phrase uh, soul-destroying, okay? So as, as I was preparing for this sermon, as I was thinking about the care of the soul, as I was thinking about verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit, I was thinking about what it means to commit your spirit, your soul, to God. And the phrase popped into my mind, soul-destroying. How many of you have heard that phrase in common usage, soul-destroying? Maybe, maybe not. None of you? Okay. Um, well, it, it's, kind of, it's often used sort of tongue-in-cheek, like, uh, like people say soul-destroying traffic, like if you have to, you know, if you're in Southern California, you have to sit in traffic all the time, or maybe if you're on 69, right, going to Indy, um, with all the construction, they talk about soul-destroying traffic, or, or maybe soul-destroying wait in line at Starbucks, um, so it's kind of a joke. It's often used as sort of a joke. But if there's truth in jokes, and there usually is, then it, it kind of, we can tease out what the world's view of suffering is. You sort of tease out from the phrase soul-destroying, as it's commonly used, um, that, uh, that the worst thing that could happen to you is to suffer in this life. You know, I, I went to Google News, and I, 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 I looked for articles that had this phrase in it. And it seems to me, it struck me, that um, it, things are described as soul-destroying when someone, or, uh, someone is in a situation where they are completely helpless and hopeless. Sort of like sitting in traffic, right? You've, you're just stuck there. Uh, you can't do a single thing to change your own circumstances, and so you're sort of forced to ride whatever wave you're on. And so you could imagine uh, many different scenarios that people would describe as potentially soul-destroying. You know, for instance, if you're kind of a free spirit and you long for, I don't know, uh, maybe you're, you, uh, you love music and so you're stuck in a job that pays the bills, puts, foods on, food, puts food on the table for your family, but you don't have the, op- the ability to go out there and maybe tour or whatever it is you want to do, right? You, you feel like a free spirit, and yet you feel confined by the circumstances of your life. Or you might, uh, you know, I, I think I thought of also um, that much of the feminist revolution in our country were women who had maybe even a, a husband and children, you know, th- good, good things, and yet felt confined by those things, felt like their life had been cast for them, and now they were just stuck, right? They were just stuck. This is what, this is what uh, midlife crises are made of for men. This is why they go out and get a Harley, right, when they're 40, in their 40s or 50s, uh, because they feel like they're stuck in their life, that they can't get out of it, and, and they feel confined by it. They feel like it is soul-destroying. Now, much of what I've just described were wicked responses to, to uh, the life that God gives us. And um, the truth is, as I, was, as I kept thinking about this phrase, soul-destroying, I realized that it's actually a pretty good description of our situation apart from Christ, 
right? The truth is that the Bible teaches that we all start out with our souls destroyed. That's the way things start. You know, you don't, you don't, your soul isn't destroyed later. That's where you're starting from. And the purpose of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is to ensure that our souls may be restored, made whole again, put back together. And so David has shown us again here in this psalm clearly that a Christian's response to having our soul destroyed, whether that's at the beginning of life or at, uh, in the midst of the suffering and misery and, and maybe confinement of where you find yourself in your life, is to commit our spirit into the hand of God. Now, what about you is the question. Whether it's suffering that you face or maybe you feel confined in your life, how are you dealing with it? Are you, with, with David, are you able to say, to proclaim with David, my times, my life, are, my life is in your hand, right? This is the response of a Christian. Do you consider it soul-destroying when you suffer unjustly, for instance? Or are you able to agree with with 1 Peter uh, chapter 4 where it says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Are you, in whatever circumstance you find yourself, willing to trust, to entrust yourself to God? Can you say, with the psalmist, verse 14, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. Each of us, no matter what place in life you are, young, old, married, single, we must trust God with where we are in our life. And what is the promise to those who trust in the Lord? What is their reward. What can they look forward to? Hebrews says that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross. And for what reason? Because he was an ascetic? You know, was he like a monk thinking that he needed to suffer uh, just because? No. It says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And this is exactly where David leaves us today in Psalm 31. Verses 23 and 24 say, Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. So if you're fighting your sin and you feel like it's hopeless, take courage. The Lord preserves the faithful. If you feel like enemies are all around you, take courage. Your God has ransomed you. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms that, that teach us. We thank you so much, Father, for bending low to us and, and helping us where we're at today. And Father, I pray for all of us in, in various places in our lives, whether we're suffering or whether we are disappointed with how things have turned out or 
Whatever we're struggling with, Father, I pray that you would come near to us and be with us and you would help our faltering faith. Help us to trust you and to commit our hand, our spirit, into your hand, Father. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.